Hey, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Happy Little Accidents. So today's episode might hurt some people's feelings, but like that corny quote says, sticks and stones, guys, sticks and stones. So honestly, this might be one of my most important podcast episodes to me personally. So with like the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, I had this whole discussion with one of my close friends. And let's just say it was really giving women's suffrage and like proximity to privilege to me. So not only am I a woman, but I'm also a woman of color. Not like I mentioned that every episode, but I do. So let me ask you this. Do you know about black maternal uh, morality in the United States? I'm going to give you a second to think about it. Probably not, unless you're a black woman or a woman of color. But in general, maternal death can cause or can result from a variety of causes such as um, the pregnancy's characteristics or the birth process, but it's not usually brought on by accident or secondary causes. So every single year, about 700 women in the U.S. pass away from diseases or complications associated with pregnancy. Now, this figure actually excludes the 50,000 or so women who during childbirth face potential fatal complications that leave them with permanent disabilities and difficulties. However, maternal death rates for Black American women are significantly higher than those for Indigenous American, Alaskan Natives, white American women, right? So despite a global decline in um, maternal morality rates between 1897 and 2016, the maternal morality rates in the United States more than doubled during this time. So maternal morality amongst black women in the United States is like two to three times greater among white women well, than white women, right? And this is actually according to the CDC, so you don't have to fact check me, but you can if you want to. In the United States, the estimate maternal death rate is 17 per 100,000 live birth. But wait for it. For black women, it's 43 per 100,000 live birth. So compared to black women, white women's uh, maternal morality has differed like a lot, significantly, let's just say, right? So according to data from like the CDC uh, pregnancy surveillance study, these higher rates of black maternal morality are due to higher um, like fatality rates, but not a greater number of cases. So researchers have actually identified several factors that contribute to the black-white maternal morality disparity in the United States, including access to healthcare, like socioeconomic status, pre-existing conditions, medical racism, racial history, and access to abortion, which makes people uncomfortable, I guess. And I think in all of this case, it's really important to say that... I think a lot of women who do have abortions, who have had abortions, don't want to have those. I don't think anyone ever wants to have an abortion, right? I think there's really scary moments in life where you could die and your body cannot pass a miscarriage or, you know, plenty of things, right? That your body can't handle it. And it's scary. I'm sure getting an abortion is scary. It sounds scary. It sounds terrifying. It sounds like, you know, you need therapy afterwards because that's a life altering event. So I think just in general, putting it out there that I don't think anyone is getting an abortion for fun. So, you know, everyone out there who thinks people are let's chill out. So, so when I say that I am scared, okay. 
When I say I'm scared for women of color, this isn't about being pro or anti-abortion. This has to do with how America treats women of color and how the condition of pregnancy looks for us. Due to previous previous exploitations, right, and abuse, the historical context of institutionalized racism in, in the United States has resulted in Black people having to deal with medical and scientific racism. Literally, this makes us, the Black community, the Brown community, less likely to trust medical institutions and professionals. So according to this article published in the American Journal of Public Health, laws making enslavement and um, inheritable status increase scrutiny of Black women and force them to bear children for the economic gain of their enslavers. Do you not see the trigger in this? The trigger. Since the beginning, since the beginning of, um, you know, women of color being brought to the Americas, our bodies have never been our own bodies. They haven't been our vessels. We have not owned ourselves. Our self-autonomy never existed. So when people talk about Roe v. Wade, the the where people are coming from are completely different aspects. Imagine never even having the chance to have control of your body. Not that you want to do anything crazy with your body, but just having control of your body. And then people who have control of their bodies more than you have had ever are now scrutinizing your choices. Anyway, so pretty much going on from that, like a lot of uh, medical and surgical techniques were actually developed by taking advantage of the bodies of enslaved Black women. So literally the body of Black women have served as vessels for this country, specifically white slave owners. So let's just think about how triggering that is when you look at the Supreme Court as a woman of color, you know, just just hits me and my ancestors. Anyway, so now the crazy thing of all this is that in um, America or specifically, you know, um, in this country, like you don't, you don't really see how uncomfortable it is in terms of like these rules and laws in terms of your race. Now, I think a really important aspect of all this is thinking about how regardless of what side like you stand on of being pro or anti, or like if you're pro-life anti-abortion um, or you're pro-choice, right? This is, I just want to put this in here, right? When people say that they're pro-life and they are anti-abortion, people who are pro-choice don't say they're pro, they're, they're like, anti-life. Let's just clarify that. And I think that's a very important kind of like aspect and part of the whole issue going on here. Let's be real. Roe v. Wade is about your religious views and whatever you want to say, church and state should be separated. But everyone who's, you know, on Instagram being like, you know, exercising their free speech and that's it, not supporting any causes or any organizations or nonprofits or anything who are saying that, um, you know, this is about religion. Like it's their religion. One, who are you to impose your religion on me? Okay. Two, this has nothing to do with religion. That's to do with the demographics of this country. This has to do with what this country was founded on, who created this country. And this has to do with keeping powers in place. And if you don't get that, it's because you're oblivious enough that this, these don't, these things really don't currently impact you. But the people who run our country realize that it does and they need to like, you know, do something about it. So the reality, right. When people say, well, like, 
if they want to have, if they don't want like the, you know, population of certain people to go down, well, wouldn't all the population go up? No, because the mortality rate of black women during childbirth is so scary, which means that would result in more death of black women, right? Which is also really scary. So just kind of going into the context of circus show and kind of like being used as a prop in terms of our bodies. Maybe you know who Sarah Bartman was. Um, she was a Hotentot. Hotentot. I'm so bad at pronouncing that word. But if you want to look it up, it's H O T T E N T O T. Yeah. Um, woman, right? And like she actually was paraded around circuses between 1810 and 1820. So she was um, actually transported from the Cape to London. And then she was like dubbed the like Hotentot Venus because like her. Uh, but her cheeks were considered abnormally large by Europeans. So following her death, uh, French scientist uh, Georges Cavier, um, Cavier dissected her body to measure her genitalia and other parts. It sounds so disgusting. Um, so a museum actually once housed uh, a cast of her body, skeleton, brain, and wax mold of her genitalia. Now, if you don't remember her then... I'll trigger your brain. Kim Kardashian did a uh, quote unquote playful rendition of her in paper magazine. Remember, I just, I just used some air quotes for that playful. Now, let me bring the art element to this podcast because between the feminist movement and the civil rights movement uh, was the uh, was the movement in terms of black arts, but it was like the women's black arts movement, right? So looking at this in a broader scope, when you're when your identity has an intersection of privilege, you probably lean towards the privileged side. So let's give some examples. In the case of black men, they lean into being a man. And for white women, they lean into their whiteness. So where do black women lean into? Right? Literally, we're just kind of like, mm, like there's nowhere to lean. Honestly, it's, it sucks. <laughs> but you know what? It does not suck, but the fact of privilege does suck. So, in this whole Roe v. Wade BS, right, a lot of people were leaning into their privilege, right? And that's where the issue came during the civil rights movement, during women's suffrage, that people who had more privilege leaned into that. And we realized that groups that were more at a disadvantage, really, they had to, you know, kind of like figure out themselves what they needed because it wasn't realistic to lean into those larger group settings. So a group of political motivated black poets, artists, uh, dramatists, musicians, writers, they're actually known as the black arts movement. And they emerged in the aftermath of the black power movement. So the uh, poet Baraka is widely regarded as the father of black arts movement. This lasted from 1965 to 1975. So when Baraka opened the Black Arts Repertory Theater in Harlem in 1965, he formally launched the black arts movement. The theater and poetry were the most affected by the movement. So some of the most like influential women included like Nikki Giovanni. She's actually a well-known female poet of the Black Arts Movement. Her early poetry had like a strong militant presence. Um, and she was promoting one writer to refer to her as the poet of the Black, um, or sorry, she was prompting and prompted one writer to refer to her as like, you know, the poet of the Black Revolution. So Giovanni actually rose to prominence after the publication of her first three poetry collections. Now, this actually includes recreation, 
um, 69, Black Judgment, 68, uh, Black Talk, 67, and Black Feeling. Well, Black Feeling, Black Talk, 67. So you should also check those out. Um, there's also Sonia Sanchez. She contributed to the Black Arts Movement and can be found... Um, her, contrib her contributions were in the realms of poetry, spoken word. Um, the first homecoming in 1968 describes both the struggle to define Black identity in the United States and numerous reasons to celebrate it, right, um, and how Sandra sees Black culture. And then we are bad people. And the way she spells bad is B-A, lowercase d, lowercase d, and then three more d's follow that, but they're all uppercase and then people. That's 1970. Um, this one really uh, looks to the experimental poetic form. So during the Black Arts Movement, uh, Audrey like Lord published three poetry collections also. Uh, her first book, The First Cities, 1968, it was like an introspective reflection of her identity as a Black person. Um, then 1970, it was Cable to Rage. And from um, A Land Where Other People Live, 1973, they both, these both were way more political than the first book. So they they explored like the injustices, oppression, um, what she faced as a Black woman, as a lesbian, as a mother, and as a poet. Then uh, another really big uh, contributor to the Black arts movement was Jane Corn Cortez. Cortez, Cortez. Sometimes I say words in my head, like right before I like I'm thinking, and then it comes out, and I'm like, "What? That was not right." So, pretty much, um, her poetry collections, uh, "Pistain Stairs" and "The Monkey Man's Wares," 1969, and then. Festivals and Funerals, 1971, were both published during the Black Arts Movement and featured the lyrical writing styles for which Cortez is currently known for. And um, Celebrations in Solitude, 1974, and her other BAM work. These were released as spoken word albums, um, which she worked with Richard Davis, which is a bassist. So Gwendolyn Brooks, so as someone who currently lives in Chicago, she is a Chicago-based poet who has really been active in the community since the 1940s. She made a significant contribution to the Black Arts Movement with her collection in the Mecca, 1968, which discusses the realities between both ugly and beautiful um, of the urban lifestyle in Chicago. Now, um, I know I'm listing off all these people, and it's like a lot. I'm trying to get, like, I'm trying to remember everything. But you really should check out these people. I mean, they're super interesting, and it gives a great perspective when thinking about how Roe v. Wade really is impacting our bodies and us as women. And then think about how, because of medical racism, how does it affect different communities? And then because of socioeconomic value, how is it connecting, um, you know, people in that capacity, right? So, um, when you look at me, 1969 is Drew. Oh, sorry. I was just watching The House of Atlanta and I just said Drew. Um, June. June Jordan's first book. It was a collection of poetry for children that used poetry to describe paintings as by Black Americans. So Jordan didn't actually publish her first full-length book of poetry until 1974. And that was New Days, uh, Poems of Exile and Return. Now, like another great uh, contributor is Carolyn Rogers. Uh, her poetry style incorporates like free verse, street slang, profanity to convey messages about identity, religion, uh, womanism, and revolution. Though some male BAM leaders um, and also Black Arts Movement, if you weren't sure what that meant, criticized her for her use of profanity with unladylike. Her poetry collection, Paper Soul from 68 and Songs of a Blackbird, 69, really established her as one of the most influential voices of the Black Arts Movement. 
Now, going into uh, Mari Evans, she was known for her uh, precise language, her detached tone, which really allowed her to speak for herself. Mari Evans' first poetry collection, um, Where Is All the Music from 68, was a deeply personal collection that included many personal narratives about Evans herself. I Am a Black Woman, 1970, her second collection included many of the poems from Where Is All the Music, but with a stronger message of like Black liberation. And obviously, like... <laughs> Someone that I'm pretty sure everyone knows, regardless of what you read, Maya Angelou. So um, although she was best known for her autobiographies, her 1971 poetry collection, Just Give Me a Cool Drink of Water, for I um, D received critical acclaim before I die. Sorry. <clears throat> it's the morning on a Friday, guys. It's rough sometimes when I remember things. So this collection is divided into two sections, um, love poems in the first and poems about the experience of African-Americans living in a white dominated society in the second. So those who, who supported the like black power movements were frequently divided into two camps, right? There were revolutionary nationalists, best represented by the Black Panthers, and then there was cultural nationalists. Okay, so obviously, like, after mentioning that these two parties are divided into two, I think it's important to bring up um, the exhibition, or it was a recent exhibition, and it was readily available to the public, and it's called Soul of the Nation. It was a traveling exhibition. So I checked out the show at the Brooklyn Museum with my mom. The show highlighted art produced from 1960s to 1980s. Each of the works in the show were in response to the political climate of being Black in America. Actually, side note, this past week I actually watched Candyman. It's a 2021 like slasher film written by Jordan Peele. Um, it's directed by Nia DaCosta. And there's this moment in the film where their main characters are at an art gallery in Chicago. And an art critic makes a comment on the stereotypical art that the black male artist is producing. She dismisses the work that is charged with the same racial babble that's consistent for art of colored artists according to her. So I say this to say that it's important to recognize that dismay and attention to racial issues in America isn't always the forefront of Black art. When I say this, or what I'm trying to say, is um, when you avoid the topic or dismiss it, on, it speaks to a larger issue that you're looking to hide, honestly. So... I actually saw this great TikTok about Black women doing nothing but enjoying life, and there was this comment in one video that we need to we need more like Black women or women of color to fight during Roe v. Wade, right? But why? Because there wasn't the same energy during like you know Black Lives Matter movements or you know in that time period with George Floyd. The funniest part of all this is that you know that the medical interactions with specific Black women that. Um, you may know, has been a fight that's been con continuing to, like, you know, go on, right? Beyond Instagram, beyond the Black Square that people posted two years ago, right? And how that even, that Black Square even aged. Let's be realistic. And now, in the words of a real housewife of New York, Dorinda Medley, it didn't age well. Not well, bitch, at all. Now, I might sound like I'm completely all over the place, but the reality is that our rights are all over the place. If you're curious about Roe v. Wade or how it impacts women of color, look to the women of color you have in your life and look exactly what they're doing now. And if you're even more curious, maybe the conversation's uncomfortable, look to art. And before you go, make sure you check out my website, kyramarera.info, for more information and seeing my latest editorials. Check out my YouTube channel, Confessions of a Gallerina, and check out my Instagram, Confessions of a Gallerina, to see my daily art adventures. Hey.